everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And we've always been interested in the mental health of veterans on this program. We've done some shows with veterans actually on the show. And um, especially since of an, the uptick of uh, PTSD and depression in veterans over the last two decades. So we thought we would invite Dr. Donnelly Wilkes to our show, who has just written a book about the big battle in Fallujah. It's called Code Red Fallujah, a doctor's memoir at war. And he will be talking to us about what it's like to be a frontline surgeon in the military, on the battle lines, and what's it like to counsel veterans who are having some struggles. So, Dr. Wilkes, welcome to The Positive Mind. Nice to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, so grateful for your service, by the way. I've read your whole book. It's a terrific book. And it has some real endorsements in the book um, by Gary Sinise, by um, General Mattis, and a number yeah. of others really on the flyleaf of the book. Um, but how did you get into being a military surgeon? And, well, we'll start with that. How did you get into being a military surgeon as just a regular surgeon? Sure, I'll give you the brief path that led me there. When I was applying to medical school after college, I graduated from University of California, Irvine, uh, with a pre-medical degree, and then got to take it the next step, get into medical school. So I'm applying throughout the United States, and during that process, Navy recruiter, recruiters will often approach um, potential doctors. And so I started talking with the recruiter. I applied for the Navy Health Profession Scholarship, and I was granted that scholarship. And once I have that in hand, they'll pay for any medical school of my choice. It's an, an amazing deal. So I ended up at, at, at uh, Tulane Medical School, New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, when I chose that school, I then uh, let the Navy know that that's my choice, and they approved it and offered me this, the full scholarship. In turn, at that time, I'm committing to seven years of active duty naval service after I graduate from medical school. So you really have to kind of know what you're getting into in advance, which is hard to do. Um, but that is how I ended up uh, commissioned as a Navy officer upon graduation from medical school. And, of course, you'd never expect to actually have to go to war. <laughs> that is correct. And, you know, it wasn't in the brochure, let's put it that way. Right. And really that's because that brochure didn't exist at that time. You know, this was pre-9-11 and uh, September 9-11 happened or, you know, that fateful day was in my fourth year of medical school. And that really changed everything for a lot of people, for me specifically. I didn't know how, but I knew that day my career would be different. And in short order, it was different um, not long after um, I graduated. So can you take us there? Because pretty quickly when you do get deployed, you're pretty much hearing bombs going off and they're not going off too far from you. That's right. So uh, right after graduation, I did obtain my residency of choice uh, for residency training at Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, family medicine. So I, um, uh, I moved back to California, which is where I'm from, and enter my internship, first year of residency. That flies by. It's long hours, a lot of training. In between some of the hospital training and required training is field medical training. 
that all officers have to go through. And then after that first year, here's the main difference for civilian residencies and civilian physicians with military physicians. All civilian physicians have to complete three to five years of residency training in a row to then practice independently, and then most become board certified, practiced independently. That's not the same for military physicians. They can be pulled from residency after one year of internship training and successful graduation, and then they can be deployed to active duty service. And that was the case for me. I was pulled from residency. Uh, I did ask to go blue side, I'm sorry, green side, which means you go with the Marines. In the Navy, you can either go blue or green side. Blue is with the Navy, green is with the Marines. I chose that knowing that things were ramping up. And then in short order, I was attached to an infantry battalion, about a 1,000 men. Infantry battalions at that time were all men, all male. And um, that battalion was ramping up for deployment. Within months, we found ourselves um, heading off to war. First stop was Okinawa for combat training for about three months, and then directly to Iraq, to Fallujah. Interesting you picked that, though. I mean, once you knew you signed on with the Marines, you knew you were going to see some really serious stuff. I mean, if you were going to be on a battleship, that's one way to, to work on a war. Yeah. But it's another way to, to be on the ground in the front line, hearing the bombs go off, you know, 100 yards from your feet. I did. You know, some some, uh, some of it was was things I could foresee as far as that yes, I'm going with uh, the Marines. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to ground combat, things like that. Other parts of it, of course, were just unknown. You know, I didn't know uh, the depths of where would we would be headed, the, the um, proximity we would be in Fallujah, those kind, kind of details developed as the war escalated and the situation in Fallujah got worse. And then our battalion, we just happened to be one of two battalions that were on point in the Battle of Fallujah and went um, head first with the insurgency. And so that kind of developed as time went on. I, I picked the Marines because I wanted to stay at Pendleton. Uh, I wanted to get my deployment over, over with and, and just kind of underway because I knew I was going to be deployed no matter what. And for those reasons, um, I, I ended up with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines and, and headed to Fallujah. And when the time is appropriate, I can tell you kind of the first incidents of combat trauma that happened and, and, you know, some of those details. Well, I'm curious before you go there, how are you feeling in this time when you're kind of ramping up to go into this field of war? Like, yeah. what's going through your head, well, you know, and maybe the guys around you? Like, how is that sort of preparatory stage? Sure. It would... That time of my life and my training was, was exciting, was challenging, was also emotionally taxing. So it was everything all wrapped up into one. I was also um, with my future wife at the time. We were planning a life together. We were trying to figure out how we're going to manage a life in the military and those kinds of things. So I graduate from internship. Again, that, you know, it's typically considered the toughest year of medical training. Uh, I did well, performed well. I did well in field combat medical school. They send you into the field and they teach you what it's like to be a military officer, uh, both uh, with uh, the uh, Marines on a ship and in the field. 
um, I'm sorry, with Navy on a ship and Marines in the field. And so you're learning what this life is like. Up until then, you know, my life was mostly as a medical student and as an intern and things like that. So you're getting indoctrinated into understanding what a life um, uh, is like in the field. And I remember being excited about what was happening and also nervy, edgy, not knowing what the future was going to hold. And then you find out you're leaving for 10 months. And me and my you know, future wife, Katie, are having those conversations and figuring out what she's going to do for that time and how are we going to communicate with each other and things like that. So I am excited and also hesitant and cautious about what's happening for my future. Yeah, I can imagine it would be a really, it's such an unknown time in so many ways. Like you just don't know what's going to happen when you get out there. Like you can prepare for everything, but you just don't know. You don't That's even know right. if you're going to come back. And I can't imagine, you know, like, and, and to sort of apply it to anybody right. who has a military family, like, you know, those feelings, you know what it's like to just be on the cusp and just really not knowing what's going to happen. That's right. And we did even things as a young couple, like getting our will together <laughs> before before oh, I left, because wow. those are real conversations, you, you know, we had to have. Yeah. 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 So even when you were on Okinawa, did you know that you were going to be part of the invasion of Fallujah? We were getting hints. So the answer is we knew something big was coming down the pipe. We were following, you know, we, we would have weekly um, battalion operational meetings. We get, you know, the map of Iraq. We look at the Al-Anbar province which was the most violent area of Iraq at the time. Fallujah's right in the middle in the Sunni Triangle. We get updates on what's happening. The Army was the occupying force at that time. We knew the Marines were coming in to take over some of those operations because the area was becoming unstable. So every week we're getting more and more intelligence and um, insight on where we're heading. As you're feeling this kind of ramp up, you're getting closer how are the men in the company responding? Are you sort of sensing people getting a little on edge, or are they just really focused? What's, what's that like? Yeah, so a, a little bit of everything. And in Okinawa, the, the training is intense. The men are doing um, urban combat training. So they've got uh, little cities set up uh, on the island of Okinawa, and they're, they're out there training on attacking um, positions and doing mock raids. I'm working in the battalion aid station treating men that are injured in training. And then we start to see little incidents of, you know, you can call it pre-combat stress. I end up seeing a few Marines in my office uh, that get into scuffles with the other men. Um, there, there was one in particular Marine, and I can get into to some details, who uh, had some serious emotional problems, and he ended up, you know, mildly harming himself because the stress was getting to him. Yeah. And so I'm seeing it kind of boil even before we get to combat. Most of the men did pretty well. Most of them were focused on their mission, but there came a point when we knew that the island fever was kind of getting to us. And every deploying member, you get to the point where you just want to get it underway. You just want to go get the job done because you know that each step in the forward direction is one step closer to home and coming back. Right. So you're talking about Erickson in the book, right, where he, he was overcome with the boredom, and he's just talking about the boredom. And I'm curious about the boredom. Uh, I, I don't imagine there could be too much boredom knowing that you were pretty much going to be activated for a pretty intense encounter any day now. So I, I can't see the boredom myself. But in the book, 
You know, and it is true. Like, um, boredom is an aspect of deployment. That's right. It is. And I should mention, um, some, many of the names are um, fictional names okay. used to protect uh, patients, you know, uh, HIPAA rights and things like that. But yeah, so Private Erickson, and to answer your question regarding the boredom, there is a lot of action, and then there's just a lot of downtime. And that downtime that you'd normally fill with all kinds of other activity when you're living stateside and can leave and go to the gym or the store or interact with family members or go to a movie or things like that, it's just not available. So you're stuck with yourself a lot or the other Marines, the other men, and you're confined to space. You know, on Okinawa, you're confined to Camp Hansen, which is where we at, where we were at. We had little you know, episodes where we'd get leave and you could go off and have dinner somewhere else besides base. But other than that, you're stuck at the chow hall. So you've got these periods of downtime. And then, of course, the same thing happens when you're deployed in, you know, in Iraq and other countries. And I can talk about what life is like there as well. Um, so, yeah, managing the boredom in between the action is the, is the challenge. I have to say I really appreciated the way you were a counselor to the men that you presented in the book. I'm curious about your training. It just struck me as a nice balance between, you know, welcoming and, and allowing the soldier, welcoming, but also maintaining a very firm boundary, like with a vision as to better days ahead or to doing your your duty. So I guess what I'm saying is I thought you did it really well um, as a counselor could see that, but were you deliberately withholding like a deep empathy in these uh, counseling sessions? Because I, I, I mean, I thought they were, frankly, I thought they were pretty brilliant, um, man to man, uh, for these cases. But I, I noticed that you were understanding, but you weren't so like really willing to go into like the deepest trauma or aspects, let's say, of the boredom. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, my my training in let's let's say you know mental health realm was an evolution as it is for you know any professional for me it started in medical school and there's quite a bit of that you know didactics and then you know third and fourth year we dive into our clinical rotations and the next thing you know we're doing rounds in psychiatric hospitals and seeing some of the most severe mental health and um, treating both inpatient and outpatient and then um, you know as an intern certainly with within any primary care or family medicine specialty, we see a lot of mental health and um, even, even more than, you know, psychiatry, just because there's not enough psychiatrists out there. So uh, my training in mental health evolved. I, 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 um, I then would say it evolved into understanding what the mental health challenges are of active duty members, young active duty members, some of them just out of high school maybe married or, you know, all of a sudden have, have some money, have some big responsibilities in their future ahead of them, and then they're thrown into combat situations. So to, to um, answer your question of maybe how I approach these situations, I try to read, to read the situation and then read the, the man or woman, but in my case mostly men that I'm talking to, and figure out the best approach and you're right, I'm, I'm keeping a boundary between, you know, officer and enlisted personnel, yes. yet, yet being a point of someone that they can trust, that they can confide in, letting them know that they're in a safe space, that they can tell me things, that my goal is to, 
you know, to keep them um, at full strength, not to remove them from the battalion. Some of them get worried that they're going to get plucked out from their platoon or sent back home, right. things like that. Right. And so you're trying to read the situation and handle each individual as best you can. Right. And and were there any that you did for more than one session, two sessions, three sessions? I mean, uh, and please do tell us a little bit about the training beforehand, because uh, you were it seemed like you were very effective. I don't know were there any failed cases. Uh, I I didn't read any of those in the book, but were there any that you had to send back? I mean, you did send one a forty eight hour break to one soldier. Yeah. So that particular instance, uh, and you know, I I um, in the book I talked about. You know, some of the most significant um, cases that I had. The one you're referring to is when the battalion has pushed forward into Fallujah. So the battle is um, in full swing. I'm positioned at the Cloverleaf, which is just a um, tactical t- term we used for our field medical aid station. We were underneath a freeway. The uh, front lines of the battle were a few hundred yards from us. And so we're in the open air and we're receiving um, wounded men to our position who are injured in battle. They're brought in by Humvee or uh, medevac. And in this particular instance, this Marine was uh, in his Humvee. They were engaging the enemy. There was a firefight happening. His um, platoon commander had you know, ordered him to drive towards this, this firefight that was going on to support the, um, the battle, and he couldn't do it. He, j- he froze and uh, basically said he, he wouldn't, he couldn't. So he uh, did not comply with those orders. And so when, when that happens, you know, of course, the platoon commander is going to recognize the situation and get him out of the, uh, the um, line of battle. They sent him to me, and we just sat down. And I, I could tell, you know, by the look on his face and um, so a little bit of the blankness to him that he was experiencing some severe combat stress. And we just talked about what was happening, and I just let him know, all right, you know, warrior, and, you know, I continue to talk to him like that's what he is and that there's no shame in what he's doing. I told him he did a good thing for telling me what was going on, letting me know so that um, we can get him some help. Just gave him some reassurance and uh, some food and let him sleep on the side of the road, you know, at our battalion aid station for uh, a number of hours in a row. He just passed out and didn't wake up. So we let him be, and then we uh, called for a medevac eventually, and uh, they picked him up, took him to the we call the next echelon of care. Uh, it's a bigger base um, in a safe place, and there is a, a combat stress tent, so to speak, where there's medical professionals, uh, including therapists there, to give him some rest and relaxation for however long they determine necessary and then reevaluate him and then send him back to his uh, unit when the time was appropriate. And is he stigmatized after something like that? You know, it's a good question. Um, Here's what I'll say to that. When you're in, let's call it any military unit, especially one that's going to war, especially the Marines, there's never going to be no stigma because... That's what, that's what the Marines do. That's what the military does. They go into the worst situations, the most intense situations, requiring operating at this level that's not normal. And so you have to put yourself in that mindset to operate at that level. And to do that 
there's going to be a stigma of I'm tough enough, I'm good enough, and nobody wants to not be that. And you're, anybody who's human is going to feel that they're not tough enough or maybe not good enough or question themselves when they have to be pulled out of the line of battle. So, yes, and there's going to be some maybe fellow Marines that aren't as empathetic as they should be. But, again, they're young and they're dealing with their own personal um, situations. And with all that said, I will say that my training and the support that the men give each other and the Marines give each other is still universally very good. And the awareness and the destigmatization that I've seen in my career is vastly better than it used to be. It's not zero, never will be zero, but the support's there. And you just heard me say that, you know, combat stress tensor there, it's talked about more, it's visualized more. And for all those reasons, um, the ability for men to get back into their unit and to function at an at a optimal level after experiencing something like that, it's much better than it ever used to be. I just wanted to add to that, like, the response that that soldier was having was a biological response. It was nothing that his mind could have overcome. And I think I just want to say that for anyone out there who may not have had the benefit of, you know, the mental health support that that's in the service now, that those that biological imperative to freeze, to faint, to, you know, play dead, basically, is so powerful. It is the body making the decision that this is the way I'm going to survive. Or not feel what's coming. <laughs> so, so just to just to normalize that, and 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 I'm glad to hear that the stigma is sort of getting normalized in a sense, like um, that those responses are seen as not things you can make in a cognitive way. You can't make that choice cognitively. It's a Absolutely. it's a part of your body that is just taking over. And you can't stop. Yeah, it. thank you for that. And I will use that kind of language before I've said to, to some of the men in the past and even my, my patients, you know, today, I'll say, listen, you're not going to wake yourself up and will yourself to overcome this overnight. You're not going to talk your way through it that just be strong enough, just be good enough. That's, that's not how this works. So know that and, let's, and now let's move on. And that's a powerful thing, I think, for people to understand. Right. How how does your education in mental health now, um, from your years of service or your time of service and your deployments, affect your life now? Like, I mean, are you surprised at how important mental health is, and does it inform a lot of your work today, in your general practice? Or you know, even let's say, especially now during uh, coronavirus, the pandemic. Uh, it does. It involves a, a a huge part of any primary care physician's practice. And certainly my experiences from the past have, have built upon um, themselves as, as my career has, has gone on. I think I am surprised, and um, uh, I think I am impressed at the extent of the involvement of mental health in conditions where you wouldn't expect it or even think about it. And so where I might not used to have think ab thought about it as much. Now I am. Now I'm asking the questions that I maybe didn't ask in the past and bringing it to the forefront. And that's hard to do because, you know, the medical system's tapped. We still don't get enough time to, to work with our patients and tease some of the, these things out. 
but now that it's at the top of my brain um, more than it used to be in the past, I'll remember to talk about it and ask about it. And I'm, uh, now I'm not surprised to see how common it, it, it is to come to the forefront of the patients who, who, who's seeing me for chest pain or shortness of breath or palpitations. And lo and behold, we do the whole workup and all those organ systems are fine and it's a stress or anxiety disorder. Right. Right. I mean, even though I know even when I go to my doctor, I mean, I'm telling you, the intake form now has questions about depression, questions about anxiety, questions about sleep, questions about diet, all these things that were never there 10 years ago. And I think yeah. it's because a lot of people are seeking medical help for conditions that are really psychological uh, and stress related. Absolutely. And it certainly ties into the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, how how could this you know worldwide pandemic not be a major stress for so many people and just kind of capitalize on medical problems that they're already suffering from? So I've certainly seen that a lot more in my practice and the you know the unknown times that we're living in for a lot of reasons, not just coronavirus, but it's been a tough year you know politically and all kinds of things. And then you know I see people. Um, they're, the impact of other parts of their life because of the stress of being quarantined and worrying about loved ones and their own health, it just capitalizes and inflates other medical problems that, you know, used to be a little bit uh, lower level for them. So I'm seeing these things heightened and ramped up during this uh, pandemic. It's making me think of what you're saying about the, the, the battalion getting ready to go into battle. It's like we were all stuck at home getting really some of us very bored and very stressed because you couldn't move out into the yeah. world in the way you would normally move out into the world. So, so maybe some, you know, correlation there in experience. And I also wonder if veterans, some of them may have felt this even stronger. I don't know. Did you see that? Uh, are you referring to during the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. I have my veteran interaction is is kind of limited to you know patients who just happen to have that um, history, okay. and so a, a lot of them are um, are seniors, are my Medicare patients. I don't have as much interact interaction with the younger veteran community. Okay. I was going to ask, how's your bedside manner? <laughs> See, I bet I mean, it's great. Uh, has it changed? I mean, can, yeah. I can imagine being exposed to you know these people under dire stress. That you know it becomes an aspect of your personality that you bring to patients every day. I, I, I suspect. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, like any physician who evolves, I think my bedside manner is, has evolved as well. Uh, most patients will describe me as you know honest and straightforward, but I don't beat around the bush either. You know, uh, that's something that I think is difficult to do, but I, but I do it with a, a loving hand, so to speak. You know, I feel like that empathy that you know, we all strive to achieve is something that my military experience has helped me um, foster and mold over the years. And I'll give my mother a lot of credit for that, too. <laughs> Smart man. In the book, you recount a, a number of really intense surgeries and deaths, actually. Was this your first exposure to, like, these kinds of wounds? I mean, really, you describe one soldier getting something through his shoulder and that there was a gaping hole you could see right through it. I mean, do you, can you tell us a little bit about your, 
exposure to these things and, and, and the newness of it for you? Yeah. Yes. My experience to combat trauma, the, I had never been around anything with the severity or um, intensity as I had seen in Iraq. Prior to that, you know, trauma situations were mainly encountered for me in hospital settings and things like that. It's much different when you're in a controlled environment and there's 10 professionals around you helping out with the situation. So when you're in the field and out in an environment that's pretty austere, it elevates everything. That was the challenge of providing medical care in Fallujah, the intense heat. Um, the, the environment is difficult to control. There's wind, there's dust. We didn't have the advanced equipment that we did in emergency room settings and hospitals and things like that. And so to uh, answer your question, the Marine who came to me with the uh, shoulder wound, that was, that was um, Private Erickson, the one who I had counseled oh, in that's Okinawa. Right. That's right. And he had, he had had some emotional struggles. He had cut, cut up his arms with his, his K-bar, which is a knife out of boredom. And um, we, we dealt with that. We got him some help, and he was good to go. So the next uh, event we meet at is at the Cloverleaf during the midst of the Battle of Fallujah. He's brought to me. And he has one of the largest open wounds I had ever seen. An RPG, if you can imagine this, had canoed through his shoulder, did not explode. It's a rocket-propelled grenade. By all accounts, he should have been dead. It, it canoes through his shoulder, hits in a building behind him, and explodes. And he's alive because it didn't explode upon impact. But as you can imagine, the impact through his shoulder was just massive. And he was only alive because he was a hulking Marine. I described him as a poster boy Marine. But he has just this massive open wound. And amazingly, it didn't sever any major arteries. The oh. top of his humerus bone is just wide, widely open. And there he is. And we're talking. And he's in shock. But he's, he's stable. We go to work on him. And um, we, there's not a whole lot we can do other than irrigate the wound, get him in some pain medication and antibiotics, uh, wrap it up as best we can and call for a medevac. And in the midst of all this, he's talking to me, he's making a joke saying, Doc, you know, I guess we don't need to worry about my arms any, anymore, my knees, because <laughs> right. we had had these interactions. And that's right. That's right. Then he, then he apologizes for calling me Doc, because that's a Corman term. Right. So we had a nice little laugh, and he asked for a cigarette because he, this Marine kind of uh, he pictured himself on the cover of Fortune soldier of fortune magazine type type of guy and we got him out of there and then in the end of the book i talk about how we we end up running into each other back in the states that's right and that was the next time i saw him and he had gone just through major surgeries his arm was atrophied down to a stick and he was really struggling still he'd had a lot of trouble still with uh, his emotional state of mind and you know ptsd and things like that and um we, I just counseled him. It was a brief interaction. Encouraged him to come find me if he could, and uh, continue to get help. And uh, that was the last time that we saw each other. Okay. We're uh, thank you so much for that. We're, we're talking to Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, who's written a new book called Code Red Fallujah, a doctor's memoir at war. And we are the Positive Mind taking a break here. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor, and I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we'll be right back.
We are back. I'm Kevin O'Donnell, a licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. And we are here with Dr. Donnelly Wilkes. Um, he's the author of a new book called Code Red Fallujah. And I wanted to read a review of his book from General Jim Mattis of the U.S. Marines, 26th Secretary of Defense. He says, stripped bare of veneer out of the toughest fighting in Iraq comes this moving narrative of a Navy doctor caught up in the Battle of Fallujah. Assigned to a frontline Marine infantry battalion, Wilkes' account reveals the human side of being tested by the rigors of war. Read this to understand the sacrifices of America's warriors when called to stand and deliver. Nice testimony. I can attest to the book. It is that way. And my question is, why aren't you on all the late night talk shows? (laughs) Why aren't they interviewing you? My gosh. Just think of the story. Here's a naval doctor just out of medical school. And they, you know, a war breaks out and he has to go to the, the number one major battle of the whole war. Within a month or two months, I mean, he has the year of his internship, but within yeah. a you know year, he's in the thick of it. And so, I want to ask you, Doctor, can you describe what it's like going from medical school and all your training to hearing bombs going off? And can you put our audience somehow there? Because you do it in the book very well. What it's like to be there when that's happening? But you, does it shatter your nerves? And can you tell us about this? Yes, let's let's go into that. The best description I'll give you is the first night that we experienced incoming mortars at the base because until that point, I hadn't quite understood what it was like to be in a war zone. And to put you in the location of our battalion, we were, uh, our forward operating base was a small training camp that um, Saddam used to uh, use for terrorist training. We took it over. It's got cinder block walls. It's roughly um, a quarter to a half mile in circumference, and we're confined to that base until we move forward into Fallujah. So we roll in. We take over from the Army who had been positioned there. We're transitioning in. They're leaving. It's either the second or the third night in the book I describe. We walk over to the ping pong tent, the recreation tent. Some Marines are hanging out, playing video games. I'm playing some ping pong with the other officers. We're just kind of settling into our new environment there. And I'm sitting down as my uh, fellow officers, Jamie McCall and uh, Mike Butler, are playing ping pong. And I'll never forget, I just hear a couple distant thuds. And it's far enough that I don't make a whole lot of it, but it pings my nerves a little bit because I know it's not normal. And we had heard a few mortar blasts in the distance. And then in the next couple moments, those studs get a lot bigger, and it's like a large thunderstorm's approaching. And that really piques my interest. And from the time that I turn my head to kind of look in the direction that they're coming from, the only description I can give your listeners that might take you there would be as if a lightning bolt had struck right outside your bedroom or, or the tent in, in the case that we were at and struck the ground because the concussive blast is so violent it shakes the ground, it shakes you, and for that moment, you don't hear anything, you don't see anything. It's just an unbelievable experience, and um, you know nothing can really fully describe it, and it happens in an instant. And so after that, there's multiple concussive rounds going off. Everybody picks up their, their you know, we're trained to immediately grab their weapon because you can't go anywhere without your weapon on base. You grab your weapon, you grab your, your helmet and your flak jacket if you have one. 
and we start moving towards an exit. It's dark now outside. We're supposed to get to a hardened structure. That could be a cement wall. It could be a, a building if you can find one. A lot of us only had tents. My um, fellow, fellow medical officer and I, Lieutenant Cormac O'Connor, we've got to get to the battalion aid station. He's running towards the battalion aid station. Incoming mortars are still pounding the um, ground right outside our wall. Thankfully, they didn't make it beyond our wall. It feels like they're right on top of you. Even if they're 100 yards away, these blasts, it's unbelievable how the distance that that force carries. And so you're kind of stumbling. I'm, tr I'm trying to get to a hardened structure, but um, Dr. O'Connor, he wants to get to the battalion aid station, so I grab on his, his, um, his shirt, and I just follow him because I can't see anything, and I want to stick with him, and we finally make it there. The blasts stop, and then we um, start you know, assessing the situation on base, getting an account of any injuries and wounds. That was the first event, and then um, really in the aftermath of that, you're just kind of like, like a caged animal is all I can describe it. Yeah. You know, you're looking around trying to figure out what to do. But I will tell you, you know, as a lot of people, a lot of professionals tell you in these situations, your training does kick in, and uh, y you remember, you know, the protocols and what to do right. from there. Right. And so it is the beginning of the Code Red Fallujah, a doctor's memoir at war that this is the beginning of your journey, that you're really yeah. now in the thick of it, and you have to, your nerves know something that they didn't know before. And you endure through your first deployment, and you, you get more of these. You get more of these incoming mortars and actually even closer experiences. In the book, there is a, um, a, what, a, a, an award-winning picture of you and six other Marines around a Marine that has just passed. Can you talk about that incident? Yes, I can. So you're correct. You know, it became fairly routine uh, in the region that we were at to receive incoming mortars and rockets. The picture you're referring to is at the Cloverleaf, which is under that freeway overpass just outside Fulgujo where we receive um, our wounded men. And that was one of the, that was the first um, Marine who had died and we had to interact with, and uh, he was brought to us uh, at the Cloverleaf. After he passed, there's a moment where you just kind of don't know what to do, and um, there's you know, a lot of men around, my corpsman, some of his fellow Marines, and just kind of instinctively, I describe it in the book, we just surrounded him, and uh, we were all uh, kind of gathered around in a, in a circle, um, embracing each other, I said a prayer over that Marine, and we just had a moment, and then we kneeled back, and we went back to work because we knew that, you know, the next casualty was going to be close by. There just happened to be an Associated Press photographer who had been dropped off at our position, and I didn't even know it at the time, who snapped that photo that became a Pulitzer Prize-winning picture, and um, yeah. the source of a lot of strength and inspiration for me because it reminds me of what happened there and what we did at the Cloverleaf. I don't know. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Yeah, just uh, that, that moment of just I'm feeling stopping. It. It's a really, really yeah. a beautiful, beautiful photo. And here are these men, you know, really vulnerable. I mean, on their knees around this guy. Yeah. It's a touching part of the book. Um, but, you know, so you go through the whole war and you function, you do your training, you know, you do what you're trained to do, and you seem to be unscathed, right? I mean, or, or just, I mean, <laughs> relatively speaking. And then post-deployment, your second deployment, um, and after that, uh, you talk about 
your own experience, like with sleeplessness and issues at nighttime. And, you know, I want to get an update how you're doing and, and what you, your take on that was, what was happening to you. Sure. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, insight into kind of the, the evolution of, of that part for me. I think looking back, I was in a unique position because as the battalion um, physician, we're one of two, myself and Dr. O'Connor, you know, we were in charge of medically caring for all these men before, during, and after deployment. And, um, you know, we're looked up to for that job. And although we weren't on the front lines, we were closer to combat than I had ever imagined. And this was one of the unique parts of um, the experience for me that I did, you know, I realized as the years went on, and it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because it was unique. There, there just have only been a handful of, of physicians who ended up that close to combat in a major conflict. Yeah. And, I did, and I happened to be there, and so I, I felt it was important to tell that, that part of the story. And then as we transition into home, uh, we're in charge of getting the, giving the entire battalion um, the briefs, we called them, for transitioning back, back home. And part of it involves what to expect with, uh, for combat stress, how to recognize it, how to, how to manage it, and, and encouraging the men to get help. And so as, as I go through this and do this and we transition home, I don't think of myself as someone who's at risk for that. It just doesn't even really enter my mind. And I did pretty well for a while. But not long after I get back, you know, I start experiencing some small episodes of things I hadn't encountered before, episodes of anger and irritability um, with my, my fiancé and eventual wife, Katie. And the first incident that really hit home is we uh, went to Mexico and uh, we always would go down to Puerto Nuevo, a couple hours south of the border, get some lobster, stay at a little hotel. It's just a wonderful experience. Well, that night, shortly after we go to bed, some fireworks go off across the street. And I wake up um, just not really knowing what's happening. Uh, for, for some reason, these, these blasts just set me off, and it took me a moment to uh, gather my thoughts. But I'm, again, feeling kind of like a, a caged animal, and they keep going off, and I'm just shaking and kind of jerking in bed, and Katie's trying to console me, and she just says, babe, it's fireworks. And I realized at that moment how, um, how hypersensitive I had been to loud noises, doors slamming, and she kind of pointed some of these things out to me. And in the next few days, we just start having some conversations, and, you know, the conversations are, yeah, you know, I guess I've been a little bit on edge lately, huh, babe? <laughs> and she's, she's like nodding yes. And, mm. you know, she's figuring out how to talk to me about it because it's a sensitive subject. And at first I'm not really open to admitting it or talking about it. But over the months I, I do realize it. I become, you know, much more open to talking about it. And then it evolves over a couple of years, to be honest. You know, the dreams, they come, they get less frequent. The irritability and the hypersensitivity, you know, gets less frequent. Uh, but I do need to talk to some people, and I, uh, I get some professional help with a colleague at my next duty station. And, and that took a lot for me to sit down with him and talk about him. And I find myself having issues kind of even admitting that I'm having some of these experiences, some of these, some of these feelings. And for me, it was a little bit more of the hypervigilance part some incidences where I couldn't feel safe. I couldn't, no matter what I tried to do in that instance or that moment, I just couldn't 
um, uh, convince myself that I was safe. And it didn't happen a lot for me, but when it did, it was pretty intense. And in one moment, um, one evening, it was so intense that I was with Katie, and I said, "I don't, I, I can't get out of this." And I, you know, I was shaking, and um, I had, I was having pro- even problems with my speech. And so she took me over to the emergency room, and I, I got checked out. And uh, I'll never forget that night because it came full circle for me what I, you know, had been experiencing, and that it was okay. And even though my symptoms had been really intermittent and it didn't, you know, ultimately affect my mood and um, my ability to function or be a physician, it helped me understand that I'm not weak. And if anything, you're stronger when you do talk to people, get help, and, you know, just don't let it, let it bottle up. And, and, of course, that experience has helped me bring my understanding of the situation to my patients and to other people. Okay. Thank you so much for that really valuable thing for for our audience to hear that from a, a trained trained professional really professional soldier and and veteran and doctor here talking about his own experience so thank you thank you very much for that i frankly think there's another book there also by the way <laughs> i mean i know it's i know what it takes to write a book but i mean wow i think there's another book there or it definitely is certainly a, a good long article uh for esquire or for the new yorker uh, yeah. The Atlantic, you know, certain magazines would love to hear that. I mean, that would be a great, great story. Yeah, th- thanks for that. And of course, you know, Jen's helping reach out beyond. Uh, we're taking. I'm taking this ride where it takes me, and um, that's why I'm open to talking about these things. Wow. So thanks, thanks for that. So I wanted to ask, you know, after that event. I guess, you know, it seems like a part of you normalized, like you said, this is, this is what happened to me. And this is my body sort of digesting this experience in a way. But did you find that there were um, specific ways or techniques that would help you? Because I'm sure that wasn't the last time you felt it. It probably keeps happening sometimes. And what do you do when that happens to you? Yeah. Yes, thank you for that. My experience was, and the most profound thing for me, was understanding that what I was thinking or feeling was real and that I know what it is. It's not this mysterious thing. I I would say to myself, hey, you, I know who you are, and I'm talking to the symptoms or I'm talking to the feeling. I recognize you. You don't have power over me anymore. And being able to help myself know that, believe it, and understand it, and then just how to deal with it is it takes time to nap overnight, but that was the most powerful thing to me. And I know that's what you know, good professionals like yourself help people do as well. And, of course, I use this language with my own patients, you know, because feelings, symptoms that you can't order a test for, you can't order a scan to see. They're very mysterious sometimes. So bringing those to the surface for patients, helping them understand real and believe that they're real and how to deal with them it, it is very important. You know, I, I, I know this is um, second nature for what you do, but helping your patients believe it is a challenge. Yeah, it's a, you, you, you're sort of naming a disidentifying process. Like, yeah. I am not my symptoms, 
they're a, a reflection of something that happened to me, but I am not them. I'm not, I'm not right. that thing. It's, it's an experience I'm having. And that's, that's right. really helpful. I think for a lot of, to, to recognize that and just say, Oh yeah, there you are. <laughs> there's, that's right. there's that. And you're from the past. <laughs> exactly. And, and you may make me feel bad, but you don't own me. And I'm going to get right. through this. Right. I'm going to, you know, um, get beyond this because I know that, you know, the, the life that I love and know is on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, so what's your connection to the military service now? I mean, do you still t- stay in touch with Cormac? Um, but, but also veterans in general, it seems to me like you have so many valuable things to say to them. And a lot of it is in this book. Again, the name of the book is Code Red Fallujah, A Doctor's Memoir at War. Um, so, uh, you know, that speaks for itself, but I think in the, in the flesh, you're very valuable to have around to hear, you know, your experience, um, and the, the tremendous dimensions of, of who you are to a variety of servicemen, I, I suppose. I do keep in contact with a number of, uh, friends from the military. Uh, some are retired or have, um, uh, resign their commissions, enter in the civilian world like myself, and others are still active duty. And I, I, I love keeping in touch with some of the Marine Corps officers who had become my best friends. Uh, one, one was the battalion lawyer, um, Captain Jamie McCall. Uh, he's now out of the service. We keep in touch. Captain Mike Butler, he's still in the Marine Corps, and we keep in touch. And uh, Phil Treglia. Dr. O'Connor, he's in the Navy still, and uh, we also keep in touch. In the veteran community, uh, since I am a veteran, I still uh, receive some of my medical care at the VA here in Los Angeles, so that keeps me in touch a little bit. And then there's some local veterans groups that I interact with. Uh, I try to support the community in ways where there are churches that, you know, they may do fundraisers. I I will go and speak at some of these organizations. Uh, I've uh, been to Wounded Warriors um, function and uh, done some support in that realm. So it, it, it's tough to stay as active as I did when I was, you know, an active duty member yeah. and immersed in it every day. Sure. But I try to I try to keep lines out in the community and certainly with this book and uh, great organizations like the Gary Sinise Foundation. I'm trying to yeah. keep my my head in the game and uh, involve myself where I can, and hopefully even more and more so in the future. What a time for your book to come out. I mean, just as your practice is probably overwhelmed with coronavirus and giving the vaccine now. I don't know. I mean, I had a doctor in my office last night telling me he has to give out a 1,000 vaccines a week now until the end of June. And mm-hmm. so it's taken over his whole practice. Here you have a book out. A very vivid, important book, by the way, a very necessary book. Again, it's called Code Red Fallujah, A Doctor's Memoir at War, a really intense book that people need to hear, read, and see you, but also you have a full medical practice. So um, how are you managing? How are you balancing this? You know, writing the book, it's been a long evolution. It took many years. I believe I'd mentioned I wrote it on the second deployment. That was to help pass some of the time of that second deployment. A lot of memories were stirred. And so it was therapeutic for me and a a real blessing for me to be able to write the book during the second deployment. Then I put it down for many years. 
picked it up again, edited, wrote more chapters, added to it, and then finally I was able, you know, to get it across the finish line and, and get it published. So it really has been a nice, um, you know, therapeutic uh, adventure for me to write this book and now to be able to share it. I feel very fortunate and, and blessed to be able to do that. There's also a message at the end of the book, you know, that um, I, I've developed over the years and that message, you know, I've kind of summarized as get your heart and mind balanced, get your body fit, grab a fistful of courage and go after it. And there's a paragraph where I talk a little bit about each of those things. My faith has been a big part of, of my journey and a very um, big component in my life that's helped me. My um, concentration and emphasis to my patients on fitness and nutrition is huge, and I talk about that in the mental health realm all the time. Patients bring it up to me much more than they used to, how important it is for them to stay active and exercise. And during the pandemic, I've heard many patients tell me how much they struggle with not being able to get out and exercise. So as people are vaccinated and the, um, the uh, pandemic has calmed down, of course, I'm encouraging them to do that. Um, more and more and more, and that's and that's been wonderful. And so, to finally answer your question, the balance has really been a blessing. Getting to be able to write the book for my wife to support me doing it, and now to have you know this out there, and um, be blessed to go do interviews like with people like yourself, to travel to a few events as they come up here. Uh, I just feel lucky to be able to do it all. And we thank you for doing it. Page one eighty four, by the way. I remember that page number where you talk about all of these things and you wind the book down. And it's worth the read. It's worth buying the book just for that. Again, it's called Code Red Fallujah, a doctor's memoir at war. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like I could talk to you for three hours. I know you're a busy, busy person. And I thank you, doctor, for being here with us on our show. There's so much more to talk about. But thank you for really sharing your experience, um, both you know, on the battlefront, but also in your own personal experience and uh, the mental health issues that um, people, I think, can identify with and experience. Yeah, and and we're always here to to try to normalize some of these experiences and to help people understand that there's no shame or stigma in reaching out for help. Um, and that, like you said earlier, it is a real sign and act of courage to ask for help and and to recognize that you don't have to do this alone. And I think it's really also important for people to hear from a doctor. There's a, there's a little bit of that white coat wall, you know. Yeah, that's right. It's nice to, to feel a little affinity with and understanding from a doctor. Code Red, Fallujah, A Doctor's Memoir at War by Donnelly Wilkes. Doctor, once again, I want to thank you. If you have any passing words you want to say to close us out. I, I do, and um, I wanted to make sure I just mentioned there are a few resources available for for veterans and, and even non-veterans out there. A website, ptsd.va.gov. There are free consultations available for any provider treating a veteran for PTSD or PTSD-related issues. Uh, you can you can do that consultation right there on their website, and there's a phone number as well. I think it's just a wonderful um uh, tool for providers. And, uh, you know, the VA, uh, the veteran community, they, they're putting more and more money into um, care for PTSD and other mental health issues. I think is wonderful. There's also a app you can get on your phone. It's called the PTSD Coach app. 
Um, it has symptom checkers, links to support and help, and also helpful um, links for friends and family. Fantastic. I just want to make sure you knew those were out there. Beyond that, I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about my book and my experience. Everything Code Red Fallujah can also be found on my website, coderedfallujah.com. Thanks again, Dr. Wilkes. You've been listening to The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Diemer, and we'd like to thank our affiliates, WBDY, KPEJ, WRWK, KAOS, KXCR, KYGT. Thank you for your continued support. Also, our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org. That's the Foundation for Positive Psychology. With questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. You can also find our podcast on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. Okay, see you next week, folks. Bye-bye. 